But we're going to turn to the Scriptures. Let's try that again. We're going to turn to the Scriptures. We're going to turn to the Lord's Word and see what it is that He has to say to each and every one of us. He is always speaking. The question is, do we have, will we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning? That's my prayer. We're going to the book of Ephesians, and before we get there, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are alive, that you rose from the grave, that you are speaking to us, your church and your people this day. You're at work when we see it. You're at work when it is harder to see. You are completing the good work that you've begun in us. And we thank you for your word that's alive, that is active, that goes forth with power. And we pray this morning as we turn to your scriptures that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd open our eyes to see you and to behold you, the King of glory. And as we behold you, that we might become more like you, the carriers of your light and your glorious gospel, this truth we have to proclaim of the God who saves to a world who desperately needs it. So help us this morning, give us listening ears to hear what you're saying to us. We pray in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to kick off a new series. I know we've been various places throughout this year, but just before we do launch into Christmas, and we always love to focus on that particular um, time of the year, scripturally speaking, as well as in other ways, we have this desire. In fact, I've had this desire for... Sometime. It's been one of my prayers throughout the last couple of years as we've navigated through some interesting challenges, some highs and some lows, and definitely through some different forms of what church looks like from a room full of people through to who can believe that it was this time last year when there was only two of us allowed to be in this particular building at that time. Does that seem just like a a bad dream from another life? Anyone else? But church has taken many different forms, and we've, we've seen some challenges in the midst of that. We've seen some successes in the midst of that. We've seen, praise the Lord, the Lord working, as he always does, in the midst of all that has been before us. But it certainly has been my prayerful journey with the Lord in the midst of the season we've been in. Lord, what is it that you're doing specifically in terms of the church? The church as the global entity, if you like, of believers, but also more specifically the church as in us, Vision Church, this group of believers gathered and called to be a part of this expression of the body of Christ. And so I've been prayerfully wrestling through some things with the Lord and we are going to examine and look together and hopefully be freshly engaged and excited at this wonderful mystery of the church. So if you like a, a title for the sermon series, it's simply this, We the Church. Find someone around you and say that. We the Church. We the Church. We want to cast a vision, not of our good ideas, but of a scriptural ecclesiology of this picture that was in the heart of God. This is his institution, not our good idea for the church. 
and all that it can be. So if you've got your, your, your Bibles open, Ephesians 1, this is one of those books that you can go to any time for encouragement. It's this wonderful, broad breadth, this panorama of the great work of God through Christ Jesus. It's very hard to, to chop and change and cut any bits out. So let's just read a chunk and kind of pick up the theme here as we head where we want to go this morning. Verse 15, for this reason, says Paul to the Ephesians, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Would you believe that is one sentence? One sentence in the Greek. Paul doesn't like to have pause. He just he gets on, on a roll. He's proclaiming something important, this wonderful mystery, the work of God through Christ Jesus, who he is, what he has accomplished. And for us, verse 22 and verse 23, it says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Underline that word there. To the church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. This incredible mystery of the outworking of God through Christ Jesus in human history. And he brings it down in verse 22 within this context, if you like, as all things are put under his feet, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. All in all. So it's interesting we see this body language throughout the New Testament. We could look at Romans 12, 5, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. We've looked at Ephesians, Hebrews 13, 3, Colossians 1, 24. All talk about this notion of a church as the body of Christ. This fullness of the mystery of God, the outworking of Christ taking this form, if you like, or this shape of this called out people, which is literally what that word church means, called out, but also called for, called for the purpose of becoming and being the body of Christ. And so all throughout the New Testament, we see this incredible mystery of the church, of the body of Christ. In fact, as we studied through the book of Acts, that was our focus for most of last year, we see that this fulfilling of the mission of Christ, it happened through what? Through what vehicle? Through the church or the body of Christ. In fact, we could go as far as to say that nothing was done without being done through the church. Everything that was done 
It came through this particular vehicle and method of the church. The giving of the Great Commission, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was in the context of the church. Discipleship, it happened in the context of the church. As Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their missionary journeys, it came from the context of the church as they accomplished their missionary journeys. What was their method and means? They proclaimed the gospel, number one, but then they established churches to raise up leaders to establish churches, to raise up, to raise up leaders to establish churches. We see this means and this method and in some ways this mystery of what Scripture proclaims here in Ephesians of the church or the body of Christ. Now, Paul will talk a lot in this particular book of Ephesians about this mystery of the church, but if you jump through to chapter 5, I just want us to pick up one more reference here, and then we'll set the scene and unpack this a little further. Now, Ephesians 5, as he's now bringing this incredible letter to a, a conclusion, he has this picture of a marriage, a very commonly preached from passage about marriage in the eyes of the Lord. In some ways, a controversial passage, it shouldn't be. It's this wonderful picture of this mutual submission of wives and husbands and husbands loving sacrificially their wives. And we don't want to go down that path too much this morning. But of course, Paul will say, but this is actually a picture of Christ. So verse 25, it says, husband, love your wives. Now, Grab this. Of course, we're not delving into marriage this morning, but for the husbands in the room, grab a hold of this. Love your wives, this is Ephesians 5, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands love your wives in that kind of a way. That's an incredible challenge. But of course, that is supposed to be an image and a reflection of Christ's love for his church. So we see as Paul begins this, he says the, the whole, the mystery of God, the un, unworking of his work through Christ is salvation. The great gospel that we proclaim. And it comes through this vehicle, this, this mystery of a church that's not only set up as some sort of an institution to just find its own way. This called out people that it says Christ loves he loves with a passionate love his people. This called out group. He loves the church. Christ loves his church. That's the point that Paul is making. He gave, herself, he gave himself for the church. He washes her with the washing of the water of his word. That he might present her spotless and blameless. Exceeding great joy. What a wonderful picture that is. What a, a mystery. What a, a, a recalibrating notion as we look into this 
incredible picture that Paul is painting to us of the church and of Christ's love for his church. And you know, I think we've got to be careful. Acts 9, we see this account as Saul, who will become Paul, is going about everywhere, persecuting the church. And Jesus himself encounters Paul on the Damascus Road, knocks him off his horse. He sees this blinding light and Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the people that I love? He says, why are you persecuting me? Do you see this picture of the depth of love that Christ has for his church? Colossians talks about us being united in Christ. It's another message. We are in him. And so an attack on the church, on his people, he sees and perceives as an attack on him personally. It's a bit like, it's, it's one thing, isn't it, if... Uh, if someone wants to have a go at me, it does happen from time to time, believe it or not. People were to say things about me, that's one thing. But if people were to say things about my wife, whom I cherish and who I love with all of my heart, I mean, it's, it's on, right? I mean, I shouldn't say that publicly in a sermon, but it's, it's a whole different ballgame. And Jesus is saying, I, I see that personally as an attack on me because my church, I love, my church is in me, there's this passionate love for his bride, for the people of his own possession. And yet we see entire ministries, don't we, set up that purely have as their goal to attack and to tear down the church. How quick are we sometimes with our own words? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place to call out false doctrine and all of that bring correction. But we need to be so careful in remembering that Christ loves the church. Regardless of its mistakes, regardless of the failures that the church has made over human history and the mess in some ways that we see around us, these different manifestations and realities of the church. He loves the church in its broken state as it is at times, just as he loves us in the midst of our mess, right? Not in the absence of it. Christ loves his church. That's the point. And so I, I want us to try and grab a hold then of, of what is this great mystery that Paul is unpacking in Ephesians about this called out group of people who literally would be called the body of Christ. Not just Paul. We see it all the way throughout New Testament. This people that God would love even with his own life, his desire. What, what is it that we can see in Scripture as we explore and examine and engage afresh with what I would call a glorious biblical ecclesiology? What should it look like? Who is it that we are called to be? What should, what should church look like? But what should church look like? Remembering we are the church. What, what is it that we're perhaps missing? As I said, that's been my prayer the last few years. Lord, what are you doing in reshaping, in refining us as your people? 
Because I do think one of the things that we've misunderstood, and not just us, you look at Jesus' letters to the seven churches, written in John's lifetime, so within a hundred years of the Lord himself having ascended to be with the Father. And already there was, of the seven, there was two churches that nothing good were written about. There was two of the churches that nothing bad was written about, which of course is our church, yes? But there, there is this need for us to continually recalibrate and to examine, Lord, what is it that is in your heart for your church? What is it that we should look like? So let me ask you this question. What is it that comes to mind when you hear the word church? What sort of images come to mind? And you can put this one into practice this week and ask someone, what do you think of when you think of the word Church, And I suggest a lot of people will immediately think or talk in terms of buildings, buildings that are configured in a certain way, have a certain liturgy or service style. I don't know why, but I thought of Mr. Bean. Who's seen Mr. Bean in the the hallelujah moments? Adam loves Mr. Bean. He knows what I'm talking about. Maybe it's a certain liturgy, service style. Maybe you think in terms of denominational structures. Perhaps they've had some experience in that place. I think of individuals dressed in a certain manner as members of the clergy. Maybe for some in society, I think possibly many in society, they think of the church as this outdated, bigoted institution that has no relevance for the 21st century. We've had some interesting moments in the headlines this week, haven't we, discussing this very notion. Can you hold traditional... um, Christian beliefs and still expect to serve in a significant role within society. Other people perhaps view the church as an object of mistrust. They speak of the church as this place of hypocrisy. And we've seen in the last few years, I know it's always been around, but this increasing number of moral failings across the church spectrum from traditional churches all the way through to the Pentecostal churches. There's no doubt, isn't there, that the church has some real issues. So what do we do? Do we throw in the towel? Do we walk out, as people have said? Or my hope and my desire is that, if nothing else, something in this series, and even this morning, would cause our hearts to just grab a sense of what the church could be. Not what the church is. I know there's plenty of bad headlines that we could dwell upon, but this called out people of God that he loves and he died for. This vehicle that he's used to change lives and turn the world upside down. His power at work in the lives and in the midst of his people. Let me ask you another question then. Not what does, in general, the world think of the church, but what, what do you look for in a church? What are some of the key characteristics of a church? Here's another question you can ask someone this week. What, what are some of the key aspects of a church? And I presume most of us would go to things like, well, you know, we've got to have good worship. Wasn't worship amazing this morning? By the way, Christina leading worship for the first time, wherever she is. Amazing job. We've got to have good worship. We've got to have good teaching. We've got to have a a scriptural basis. We've got to have a good form of 
of liturgy. I don't know how many times we're sitting and standing and most of us would go for some of those practicalities and in and of themselves, they're not bad. They're good things to look for in a church. But here's the question I want to ask us, and this is what we're going to unpack and explore, not this morning, but over some weeks. That's perhaps what we would look for in a church, but what does God look for in a church? What is it that he is envisioning in his mind as Paul proclaims this great mystery in the vehicle of a church? There's people that he loves and he he died for. What, What is it that's on his list of characteristics? Is he looking down thinking, gee, I wish they'd sing more of those type of songs. I wish they'd do it this way or that way. Or are there other things on his list of criteria? Perhaps John 13, 35, we looked at this just a few weeks ago, this new commandment that Jesus says to his disciples. Here's, Here's a new commandment. This is something of great importance. Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all the world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for each other. See, what a challenge that is, particularly in the individualistic world in which we live. I mean, we could probably point to some churches. Well, that church has amazing worship. Well, I love the teaching at this church. I love the the programs and the focus on evangelism, whatever it might be. How many churches could we genuinely look at and think, man, they nail this. Like you walk in the door and you know the love of God expressed through his people. So it talks about the early church. No one was in need. It wasn't just a superficial love. It wasn't just a conversation and a hug. That's a good start. But they cared so deeply that they gave. They looked after one another. Is, is, is that part of his list? What about Acts 2.43, Acts 5, this, this place where it just says the people were in awe. Like there's this sense of awe and reverence and majesty. Is, is that on his list? Is that, is that part of his criteria? Are people who come and they're just fixated and centered on this king of glory, that you would have your glory, this honor and reverence in the lives of your people. What about this picture of being filled with his spirit? He says to the disciples, just just wait here. His spirit's going to be poured out, which was in the context of this community. And Paul expands upon this, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians, he talks about this wonderful model of a church where the spirit empowers every single member. A church that really genuinely works together and functions as a body. There's not spectators and participators, that everybody knows their role and plays a part. This church of mission and commission, as people were sent out, as they embraced this reality of taking the good news to the ends of the earth, a church that embraced persecution, they didn't see as a mark of the Lord's favor the number of fancy cars in the driveway, the number of private jets. They counted persecution. I mean, imagine if we grabbed this mindset here. As the disciples, they said, as persecution came, they counted, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer. 
praise God for some persecution. That we would be counted worthy to suffer for the glory of your name. That your name would be honored and glorified. See, I want to cast a vision of a different kind of church than I think most of us grab a hold of. A church that's beyond a style of service or a type of building or a form of liturgy, as important as those things are. But this kind of church that God desired in his heart, that he loves. To paint this this picture of something that we can ascribe to and ask the question, just not what does the pastor do, but what is it that is our role? We are the church. I am not the church. I am not Vision Church. This is Vision Church. What is it that we need to do to head towards this incredible picture that hopefully will unfold in coming weeks of this called out people of God that he loves. And so if you want one point this morning, one point, and one point only, this is a church and a journey that begins and ends with him. Begins and ends with him. See, we read Ephesians, and it's interesting as I'm struck, I was struck this week again reading through that passage. You know, there is... No way to read into that particular passage anything other than this is a story that begins and ends and all the details in the middle are consumed and are concerned with Jesus. That's where the story begins. I'm so thankful there was no coordination, but as the worship team just proclaimed this morning, the name of Jesus... The name of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus, the simplicity of Jesus. I've uh, come across, I think I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago in a, a sermon series, but been really personally encouraged by what God is doing in the Middle East, particularly in the nation of Iran. And there is a particular ministry group called Elam Ministries, website www.elam.com, and they've got a, a podcast by the title of... Um, Jesus Speaks Farsi, you can look it up. And all they do is they're they're a mission work that documents and encourages the underground church in Iran. Some incredible interviews there of what God is doing in that particular nation. One guy who had been on the ground for some time, and he talked about the fact that there had been a lot of missionary work in in the nation of Iran leading up throughout the 1900s, leading up to uh, 1979 when... The Islamic Revolution happened, but at best there was only a couple of hundred Christians in that particular nation. And of course in 1979, with the revolution that happened in that place, Christianity was outlawed. Any remnants or trace of Christianity snuffed out. Organizations not allowed to come into that nation. And so everybody thought, this is it. The, 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 the Christian presence in Iran is dead and buried, which it was, but for God. And so they they interview this incredible explosion of the gospel that's happening to the point now that Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. That's what they believe in terms of percentage of of converts. There's millions of converts. And all of these incredible stories of people meeting Jesus. And as I've listened to these testimonies, I'm struck by the simplicity 
I mean, we, we would think from our Western, with our Western mindset, from our Western way of thinking, how can there be a thriving church? There's no buildings, there's no programs, there's no gatherings together other than sort of illegal gatherings in homes. How can you have a thriving church without all the stuff, without the, the worship bands, without the, the preaching, without all the form and structure that we put so much emphasis on in the West. And I want to be careful here because I don't think any of that's bad. I love worship and I love preaching. But you know what it is that they have that so often in the West we forget the need and necessity of? They have Jesus. They have him. They have him. They've got none of the structure. And yet Jesus is alive and he's at work in the midst of that nation. And millions of people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ just through one-on-one sharing of the gospel and discipleship that happens in that place. Francis Chan, he tells this story. It's a a great story of his daughter. I forget how many kids he he has. He's got more than me. He's got five, six, seven, not sure. Um, But one of his girls was in her teenage years and they were going to put on a big party for this particular child of his. And talking through the different options, having four girls myself, I know the the extravagant ideas of a teenage girl as to exactly what they might want in a party. And he's like, you know, sweetheart, how many people do you think would come to your party if literally all we said was it's cake and then hanging out with you? We're here to celebrate you. Just have have a cake and we'll have a time hanging out. Just like, oh, Dad, I think there'd only be a couple of people. It's like, oh, well, how many people do you think would come if we hired out the arcade and we gave them free tickets to the rides and just like, oh, the whole school would come? And he said, yeah, but if we did that, then how many people do you think are actually coming along just to spend time with you? And he, of course, uses that example as an illustration to talk about this reality that in the Western church in particular, we've had so much of an emphasis upon the trappings. All the other stuff that in and of itself is not bad. But it is if it distracts us from what is the beginning and the end and every page, which is him. He is the guest of honour. He is our source. He is our saviour. It is from him, it is for him, it is to him. Who have we got? Do you want to come play some keys, my love? I think one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, Revelation 3, as Jesus is looking at his church. It's in the midst of these seven letters that he writes. In the midst of that picture... He says to this church of Laodicea, a church that he said, because you say I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. But verse 20, he says, but I'm standing at the door and knocking. And the picture here is a Jesus who's on the outside. A church who said, we've got everything. We've got the works. We've got it together. But they've forgotten the one thing that matters. 
that is the one who this is all about. That is Jesus. So would you just turn your attention to him this morning as we conclude? If we're going to launch into this series, if we're going to, I pray, hopefully discover again the wonder of this glorious ecclesiology, this people, this church, this body of Christ, who we are, what it is that we're called to do. It begins with getting our eyes back on Him. It's a question we should always be asking one another in our midst. Where is Jesus in the midst of this? Where is Jesus? Have we been distracted by all the trappings, all the stuff? It's true on a, a church level, as it is for us, as it is on a personal level. Caught up in all the rides and all the busyness and forgotten about the main guest, the guest of honor, the reason we're here, the, we, the reason we move and breathe, the reason we sing, the reason we turn to scriptures, the reason we get up in the morning, the reason we live with this hope and this inextinguishable joy, it's all about Him. It's all about Him. It's about who He is. It's about what He came to do. And so, Father, we just pray this morning. I thank you for Paul's encouragement to the Ephesians. Thank you for this mystery That even though we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, that you would see fit because of the greatness and your love and your mercy to rescue and redeem us, to call us out, to be a part of this incredible body of believers. to live for your glory, to know you. And we just want to acknowledge this morning, Lord, that that begins with recognizing you as our head. We are your body, but you are the head. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. And Lord, I want to pray this morning for anybody here, anyone joining online who doesn't know you I pray even just in the quietness and the stillness of this moment that you'd open eyes to see you that you'd draw through your grace and your love those whom are far away to your heart Lord I pray for for those of us who do know you that there'd be a greater recognition of your love, not just for us personally, but for your people. That there'd be a greater recognition of your lordship over our church and over our lives. 
and that there be a greater surrender. What a joy it is for us to lay down our lives and all that we are to the one who laid down his life for us. We pray these things in your wonderful name, King Jesus. Amen.